0: Hi, this is Paul Brannigan, author of Unchained, the Eddie Van Halen story, and you're listening to Shane Christopher-Neal on Giant FM.
1: Locked and loaded. The
0: Industry 45 Show with host Shane Christopher-Neal. All
1: right, Industry 45 Show, giantfm.com with Shane Christopher-Neal. You can access the show, of course, giantfm.com, my website, shanechristopherneal.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm super excited for this conversation. Uh, I don't think he's related to Laura Branigan, who came out with the 80s hit, Gloria. But Paul Branigan is on the phone, and he is an author. How you doing, my friend?
0: I'm very good, thank you, Shane. Thanks for having me on your show.
1: Hey, no problem. And a great book, Unchained, and the story of, of Eddie Van Halen. And who doesn't love uh, Eddie Van Halen? I have a massive respect for you, and I'll tell you why. Because I decided in 2022 it was going to be my year to become an author of sorts, <laughs> and and I decided, okay. I decided that um, I'm a big fan of the band Poison, and I play in a Poison tribute band as the drummer, and I'm co-authoring a fan book. There you go. I'm co-authoring a fan book with my lead singer, which are more like journal entries than your book. Um, is 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 just your book is unreal, number one, but it's going to be a lot simpler than that, but I just respect you as an author, man, because it's not easy to be entertaining and to get the content out, and and you've written so many great books. Uh, This is a call. I love David Grohl, uh, co-authored a Metallica book, a book about Lemmy, so what I want to do, even before I start talking about Unchained, I want to ask you, as a fan of music, uh, where your love of music began. You live, I believe, in Ireland, and I just assume everybody in Ireland just like you too, and that was it. (laughs) But uh, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's not the case, and and you can tell me where that began. And, and if my research is right, I think the first concert you actually went to was Wasp. But I'll let you tell the story.
0: Yes. yes, yeah. yeah, so, yeah so I grew up in Northern Ireland, and I hated you two as a as a kid, as a teenager. They were sort of everything that I despised, and um, I sort of grew up on punk and heavy metal. And there wasn't an awful lot of concerts coming into Belfast in those times because. Uh, we had a bit of a, a situation where people were trying to bomb one another and shoot one another quite frequently. And um, so bands got somewhat scared off uh, coming over to play. So there was literally like maybe two rock shows a year. So it, to my <coughs> eternal regret that my first rock show was it Metallica supported by Anthrax at the Ulster Hall on the Master of Puppets Tour. Because I couldn't find anybody to go with me and I basically check it out going on my own. And so the next option Was what who I had zero interest in Whatsoever But I needed to sort of um, break my Constant virginity, and so that was where I ended up going, and I distinctly remember um, There was some Underage drinking going on, which probably helped The appreciation of the evening, I've got to be honest But also, I distinctly remember About ten minutes in, everyone Around me was head hanging, and I was thinking This is really stupid (laughs) And then I sort of decided to, To give myself over to The gods of rock and roll and sort of pushed away up to the front and sort of joined in the, you know, the pits and joined in the head banging and had one of the, you know, greatest sights of my 16 at that point. And so, um, yeah, I was kind of hooked from then on in.
1: And with this book about Van Halen, so I want to ask you this too is that there's a lot of Van Halen books out there in fact, the last one I think I read uh, was Ted Templeman's which is about him but but also has a lot obviously about Van Halen. So where did your love of Van Halen begin uh, and, and why would you want to write a book about uh, Eddie Van Halen besides the fact that he is the ultimate guitar player obviously?
0: Yeah well actually my uh, sort of um, uh, discovery of Van Halen came to a school friend. And um, he had a couple of older brothers who were into Rush and White Snake and bands like that. And um, because he knew I was listening to, you know, at and Sin he was like, oh, you might like this band. They're called Van Halen. And um, so obviously I put it on and like everybody else, first time to hear Van Halen won, I had to uh, spend the next couple of minutes scraping my jaw off the floor. And, um, you know, at the time I was, sort of, I guess, just starting to play guitar myself really badly. Um, I was probably better then, mind you, than I am now and I started taking lessons uh, with a guy called Rocky in my hometown, and Rocky's claim to fame was he could play Eruption standing on his head. So, you know, Van Halen, to me, sort of represented kind of the American dream, basically. I mean, obviously, you know, um, he came over, a little immigrant kid from Holland. Uh, His family suffered a lot of racism in Holland. Came over to California, faced a fair bit of racism there, but sort of fell in love with rock and roll, fell in love with, obviously the state and you know the country and um, he did basically sort of poured all that into his music and sort of then began exporting that around the world and you know let's say like immigrants get a bad rap in so much of the world and I thought this bit was a nice reminder of the positive uh, aspects that you know uh, immigrants can bring to a culture and to a country.
1: It's it's funny. I heard you say in an interview, and you're so right. I mean, I live in Canada, so I'm not in the United States, but very close to it. Spend a lot of time there, but California was almost like its own country. Like it's like you know all these great rock bands and the Doors and Van Halen. You know, uh, up in Pasadena, and then it got through into my era, which was the '80s and all of the glam rock and Guns and Roses, and it was like it was like this big. Wow, this is this is. Way out there, man. This is not even the same country, uh, and yet it was. And so it represents so much great music. Were you ever worried in writing this book that, you know, Van Halen is a is a massive topic with a massive audience that, you know, you were going to hear? Well, that's not right, or or, I don't agree with that. Or was there any of that going through your mind as an author to take on a book and and, and, uh, an artist of that caliber? Uh,
0: No, to be honest, that happens afterwards when you see people online trying to massacre you and saying, I've read everything in this book before, which there, there, those reviews are up there on Amazon, and it's like, you haven't. I know you haven't, because you just haven't. Some of these people have never spoken before, but that's beside the fact. There's no point in getting too uh, caught up on that sort of thing, but I think you just try and, um, you know, sort of separate back from fiction and tell the best story you can, I guess. If I, when I'm writing books, I kind of always think of it as a, a film script, and I try and pick four or five sort of significant events per chapter, and kind of expand upon those, you know, so it's moving sort of theme to scene. So, you know, are you getting the full picture? Probably not, but then only Eddie knows the full picture. And to be honest, Eddie would have forgotten a lot of that picture himself because of his sort of overindulgences back in the day. Right. I mean, you mentioned um, the Ted Templin book, and the author or the co-author of that book is a guy called Greg Renoff. We also wrote a superb book about Van Halen's early years called Van Halen Rising, right? Yes, which I sort of, um, single out in the, you know, at the end of my own book saying, look, you know, if you've read this, then go buy that next. And there's also, you know, while I'm on the, uh, you know, giving props to other people, there's a journalist called Stephen Rosen who worked for guitar world in the seventies and eighties. And he was a journalist that, um, Eddie trusted most in the world. He was a friend and a confidant. And he's actually got a book coming out in April, I think called tone uh, master, um, which, uh, you know, will be very of interest, huge interest to guitar geeks. I mean, from my perspective, I, you know, I wanted to tell, you know, the, the sort of the, the broader picture, you know, it, you know, is it, do I go into the details about every amp he ever used and the string gauges? No. But I like to sort of, I like to think that when people read the book, they'll go back to the records and they'll remember why those records filled them with such joy. And then the way it'll sort of reel back the years for people and, you know, put them back in their mindset of where they were and what their life was like when they first heard that
1: band. You are one of the um, few people that I know anyway, that personally got to sit down and have a conversation with Eddie Van Halen. I think you did that in 1998. Um, tell me what that experience was like for somebody listening, going, what was it like sitting right next to him? And you have a cool story about the tape recorder on the table, which had nothing to do with the conversation that you were having with him. Uh, so tell me what it was like to be in the same room with him in that conversation.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was pretty amazing to be sort of brought over from London to, to Eddie's house, 5150. I mean, that was promoting the uh, Van Halen 3 album, which, as any fan will know, is not their third album, but the, sort of, the first album of what was intended to be the third act uh, with Gary Cherone, so who followed on from Sammy Hagar, who in turn had followed on from David E. Ross. So um, I think their band and the record company were on a bit of a charm offensive with that record because they knew it wasn't going to be an easy sell third time around. And uh, so I like a over from London. And, you know, yeah. you go up to the house and Eddie jumps out of his Porsche and he's all like, the first word he said to me was like, hey man, do you like my trousers? And he was wearing these awful brown corduroy <laughs> flares. And you think, I'm not going to tell Eddie Van Heel that I don't like his trousers. So you're like, oh, okay, yes.'" Yeah, sure. And then, you know, this is a time when um, Eddie was sober and clean um, as he was during the sort of writing and recording of that record. And he was super proud of that. He was super nice. He was talking about, you know, uh, how he sort of missed being away from Valerie and Wolfie and how him and Wolfie would go down to the beach and pick up sort of smooth stones to get fashioned into plectrums. And he was super supportive of Gary Cherone, you know, putting his arm around his shoulders and saying, you know, this guy's like my brother. We were met to we put this earth to make music together and Et cetera, et cetera, and the story with tape Recorder, um, He set his own sort of, uh, you know, cassette recorder alongside mine on the table, and I thought, oh my god, he thinks I'm going to like stitch him up, and you know, misquote him in this magazine article. And it was only years later when I read about his sort of methodology, um, was it basically, you know, Eddie A always had a guitar in his hand, and B pretty much taped every you know sort of notes that came out of that guitar, um, just in case there would be a sort of a, a nugget, a, a riff in there that, you know, he could pull out and extrapolate into a new classic song. I mean, he spoke to the writer Chuck Fosterman and admitted that most of his best riffs and best songs were written while he was in an altered state let's say, um, under the influence of um, alcohol or stronger stimulants. And he didn't remember writing a lot of those riffs. Um, so the tape recorder was there as a an aid to memory. And, um, you know, it was uh, sort of a little disconcerting at the time, but uh, when I sort of read back in that, I was sort of quite just uh, that you know, maybe there was something buried on that cassette that uh, might have ended up on a Van Halen record at some point.
1: And that that that's a great story. And and you know on another note, maybe why Van Halen three wasn't a great album because you know <laughs> he was sober anyway. Um, you, you tell yeah, us. Yeah, I mean he, I mean one of the one of the, 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 the crushing things I think about Eddie's life is
0: that you know he was so sort of heartbroken by the fact that everyone turned the back on the band on that record. Yeah. I mean, obviously he wasn't a great record, but, you know, you think there's 10 million people who went out and bought Van Halen 1, there's 10 million people who went out and bought 1984, and there was about half a million people who bought Van Halen 3. So I think he, on a sort of um, an ego level, um, he never really recovered from that from that blow because, like I say, he wrote that album sober and was super proud of it, and the world just didn't want to know.
1: Um, I got the... Um a copy of this book, digital copy, obviously, late in 2021. Um, at the time I was going to read it, I ended up getting COVID for like a week and a half. And and then I flew to Las Vegas for a couple of weeks. And in that time, I've, I'm going to say I've read half of it. Um, and I am going to order it, by the way. You can order it on Amazon.ca here in Canada, and it, it's well worth it. But you have some really cool stories. David Lee Roth, I did not know, uh, failed a couple of auditions. For, for Van Halen, and maybe you can tell that story a little bit, because that does not appear in the David Lee Roth book.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, they say, you know, the history is written by the, the winners, you know, and um, rock stars in particular, when they are sort of relaying their origin stories, they tend to leave out any inconvenient truths. And, uh, you know, obviously Dave, the ultimate showman, and one of the greatest sort of rock and roll men of all time, but yes, he did fail two auditions for the band back when they were called uh, Genesis. I thought that um, was funny, they were too. I, I,
1: I, I thought that was a great story. They're called Genesis, and then you have Genesis coming up, which was another massive band. So when I read that, I thought that was kind of cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, to say, um, before that, they were called Mammoth, which is obviously the name that uh, Wolfgang has yeah. reappropriated for his own project now, which is also a nice nod to the past. But yeah, Dave, you know, always was sort of waiting for the world to catch up with his talents and his ego. And, um, you know, his friends called him Superstar when he was sort of 15, 16 years old. And, you know, I think even the most diehard Van Halen fan would acknowledge that he's not the greatest singer in the world, but my God, can the man talk? You know, if he wanted a sort of a, a representative of Earth in some sort of intergalactic talking competition, you know, David E. Roth would be a good shout to represent well, well, us. Uh, and obviously he's got the look.
1: Go, go ahead, yeah. I'm sorry? No, go ahead. Carry on. He's got the look, uh, well, of course, we, yeah. I so he obviously he's got the look and he's got the
0: swagger and he's got the you know what we call in Ireland the gift of the cab he can you know charm the birds from the trees so you know that combination of him and um you know Eddie's sort of prodigious talents was pretty irresistible obviously did each you have- one of them knew they couldn't do without the other
1: did you ever get a chance to talk to David Lee Roth at all or would you like that opportunity if it came about
0: uh, I would absolutely love that. But I don't think many people get the chance to talk to David Lee Roth. They get the chance to listen to David <laughs> Lee Roth. <Ross>. Uh, <laughs> the most recent interview he did was, uh, you know, with a Las Vegas paper when he announced, um, you know, his sort of farewell shows, which obviously, as we know, got cancelled as well, or postponed at least. And the writer who wrote that piece said he literally asked one question and, and David Lee Roth talked and then hung up and the writer never got to ask the second question. Um, so uh, it would be a joy just to sort of, you know, sit in front of the man, um, you know, bask in his aura for a couple of hours as he talks your ears off. But well, um, sadly, that's that, that uh, delight of never mind.
1: Well, it's funny because I mentioned to you I went to Las Vegas. So what happened was I was going to Las Vegas for a couple of weeks and uh, for work, and I had tickets to see Kiss initially, and then they canceled their residency. And then, lo and behold... David Lee Roth uh, added more dates and he had a date on January the 15th. I got tickets to go to the show at uh, in Las Vegas at Mandalay Bay, their House of Blues on the 15th, which of course did not happen. But I do yes. have a poster. I have a poster from the House of Blues for January the 15th and uh, I got it at the House of Blues because they were giving them out because they wanted to get rid of them because the show didn't happen. And I'm wondering if what's going to be w- worth money one day because it's a show that does never existed. And especially if he never plays again. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's my my <laughs> yes yes. Here's something else. You, I believe, uh, did talk to Sammy Hagar, though, correct? In, like in, in your career at some point.
0: Uh, yes, I did. I've spoken to Sammy four or five times and talked to him.
1: Okay, so if I was to ask you what that was like, and, and, and I guess your opinion of Van Halen, which are really in two halves, right? The Roth era and then the, the Hagar era, because I am got to be honest with you, as much as I love David Lee Roth for what you mentioned, uh, his showmanship, his personality, there's no bigger rock star ever than David Lee Roth. Sammy Hagar, to me, was the real deal as a songwriter, as a singer, and I truthfully got into Van Halen at 5150, probably one of my favorite albums of all time. I'd just like to hear your opinion.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's super interesting. I mean, people are very sort of uh, partisan in their choices. You know, it, it's either or for a lot of people. Um, you know, Sammy, a great guy to talk to. One of the first interviews I did with him, it was sort of a career-spanning kind of retrospective. And uh, I was asking various questions. I was saying, you know, this thing went wrong, and did you you know, get annoyed and that didn't work out? And, you know, Ted Templeman didn't pick up your option when you went solo and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, man... You know, I was pretty proud of my career until you came on the phone. Now it seems like I screwed up everything. (laughs) And I was like, oh. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, you know, he needs no um, career direction from me. But, I mean, I've got to be honest, you know, my era, you know, I'm sort of of an age when I I would have grown up uh, with Sammy too. But uh, for me, you know, the David E. Roth albums were such a, a sort of evocation of sort of America and California, and they were like a state of mind and you can't listen to those albums without a huge smile on your face. By the time that um, uh, Sammy jumped on board for uh, 5150, you know, I'd discovered Metallica at that point, Slayer at that point, and then Guns N' Roses brought out Appetite of Destruction in 1987, that's how I wanted my hard rock to sound, you know, sort of feral and dangerous and, you know, smelly, and the sort of record you'd want to hide under your bed if your mother walked into the room, whereas by that point, uh, Van Halen were. Essentially, making sort of you know Jerry Bruckheimer movie soundtracks, and um, you know undoubtedly Sammy, fantastic voice, fantastic uh, musician, and you know a, a great character in his own right. But you know for me, it's always going to be the the DLR era that I associate with Van Halen, and those are the records that I keep going back to. Um,
1: One other story I want to talk about, because I I am a big KISS fan. Do you believe Gene Simmons, or do you believe Paul Stanley, uh, in what you had put in your book about uh, uh, Gene saying that Eddie was going to, or they had asked Eddie to join KISS in, what, 1982, I think?
0: I mean, I I wouldn't believe Gene Simmons if he read my name back to me. (laughs) Um, Excuse me a hugely entertaining man. You know, I interviewed Gene a couple of times face-to-face and um, one of the things that he does is uh, instead of saying pleased to meet you, he goes, it's your pleasure to meet me. Uh, which I thought was very good. And that's <laughs> the sign of the man's ego. But uh, uh, another brilliant interviewee. But yeah, yeah, great story where, you know, he has always maintained that Eddie sort of begged him to join, um, you know, begged uh, him to let Eddie join Kit. Uh, you know, sort of around circa 1982, 83. And, um, you know, Gene swears this happened. He, you know, he, he will swear to the dying day and I asked Paul Stanley about it. And I said, "Well, so, you know, let's go back to that day. Eddie's in the studio. He's hearing a few songs. So he nip out for lunch. I said, now, you know, if I'm in the studio and I'm you, I'm going to wait for Gene to come in and go, oh my God, you never guess what. Eddie Van Halen wants to join the band. Uh, and I said, so does that happen? And Paul said, that never happened and i said so are you saying are you saying that that whole story is a fabrication he said i'm saying that never happened you know code uh, uh, you know clear as day that never happened and you can make of that what you will know. um and uh yeah i mean i love gene a master storyteller and a, a wonderful character but yeah i'm going with false family every day if it's uh veracity and the truth we want.
1: <laughs> um Uh, because I call this podcast From the Drum Throne because I'm a drummer and I I end up interviewing a lot of drummers. Um, Talk about the importance of Alex Van Halen to that band and to Eddie Van Halen and what I like about Alex Van Halen, not only a phenomenal drummer and kind of a quiet type guy, but you know, he has uh, had so many opportunities that he could have went anywhere to play, especially over the last number of years when Van Halen was doing nothing, but he was just dedicated to, to the Van Halen brand. And, uh, but talk about what you felt he meant to Eddie, uh, and, and the band Van Halen. I mean, I think he meant
0: everything to Eddie, you know, people always talked that that the two of them fight like cats and dogs. You know, there's so many great stories where, you know, they'd be on tour and they'd be with other bands or other road crews and suddenly there'd be this explosion from across the room with the two of them screaming at each other's faces in Dutch and, you know, dragging each other to the floor and trying to land punches. And then two minutes later, it'd be, you know, racking out a line of some uh, Peruvian product and uh, just tearing off with a couple of girls on each arm. Uh, you know, they'd have that sort of classic... Um, you know, uh, not sibling rivalry, but that sort of family bond that uh, makes a lot of brothers go for each other's throats occasionally. But um, I mean, very much the rock of um, Van Halen, in the same way as Michael Anthony was. You know, super talented drummer, absolutely beloved by Eddie. And I guess you know the guy who sort of took Eddie under his wing and protected him a lot of times. You know, I don't think Eddie was going to uh, win too many punch ups in the you know bars in Nashville if he had set the locals whereas um, Alex was the sort of man you wanted on your side. I mean, there's some completely filthy stories which are not worth uh, repeating for the sake of family decency, where, um, you know, Eddie would wake up in a hotel room and, and realise that um, uh, his elder brother had arranged for uh, a female to be sitting on certain parts of his anat- anatomy um, as a wake-up call. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, actually, the a story about kids, You know, I spoke to uh, a great um, American journalist called Jace Obrecht, who uh, did Eddie's very first interview for Guitar Player magazine back in 1978. And when I mentioned the, uh, the Kiss story, he said, you know what, that story is absolute nonsense. He said, I'll tell you why. He said, family was everything to Eddie. You know, and loyalty, and, you know, pride that he had, and the, the brand had built up. And he said, Eddie would never have left Alex. Never, never, ever. So he said, I'm calling BS on that story right there for that fact alone.
1: I'm sure there's a lot of things you learned by uh, doing your research and over the years. Um, maybe tell me something that, that truly surprised you uh, when you were writing this book, whether it be about Eddie or any of the stories and maybe something that, that you really didn't know that, that kind of, you know, you got to learn about it is, I don't know if that's a fair question or if there is something that stands out, but if there is, what would it be?
0: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, there wasn't anything on that sort of level of like the sort of Eureka moment of, Oh my God, you know, sort of, a, a revelation moment like that. I mean, I kind of enjoy the, the little small details that people share with you. And sometimes it's the people who are, you know, not the Gene Simmonses and not the Sammy Hagars, but people who are sort of lesser players in the story who knew the band early on. with the little details. So there's a guy called Greg McGee, who used to be the front man of a band called Sorcery. And he, you know, talked about how they used to hang out in Los Angeles. And one day they went down to see the runaways and, um, play in, you know, the the Troubadour or the Whiskey, I think it was the Whiskey, and um, they went and knocked on the door to say hello to the girls the Runaways, and at that point Eddie projectile vomited onto the floor, and obviously horrified, you know, all the girls in in the van and in the dressing room, and they had to sort of drag him away and throw water over him and, you know, sort of try to uh, make up for the embarrassment of having this nightmare friend, so uh, it's just those kind of little stories I like, which sort of flesh out the, the narrative. I mean, there was nothing that I uncovered that was, you know, say like eyes wide open and oh my god, this has never been told before, and I can't be to share this with the world. But just little stories from people, uh, like you know, Geezer Butler saying that Tony Iommi had to have a word uh, with Eddie in the street, word to tell Van Halen to tone it down a bit, or because you know, they were going to be thrown off the tour when they were, you know, basically murdering them every night uh, on a Black Sabbath headline tour. Those little things I, I sort of enjoy. I, I like sort of filling in the, you know, the, the background uh, rather than, you know, the sort of big revelation. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, uh, those stories that you're telling are, are all in the book Unchained, uh, the story of Eddie Van Halen. And like I said, I've, I've read half of it online um, on the document that I've got, but I'm buying, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm old, like I'm in like 52. I need a book, like physical books. So I'm going to go to Amazon and definitely purchase this book. And to wrap up on this, um, and, and what, like I said, what I've read so far, you've, you've knocked it out of the park. It, it's truly a great book. And I read rock and roll books. Weekly, daily, literally. What would be your next project to me? And is there going to be another project um, like Guns N' Roses, something big and flashy again from Los Angeles? Or would you take a different route? Uh, Have you thought about what's happening next with Paul Brannigan as an author?
0: Uh, To be honest, I haven't. You know, there was so much um, anguish (laughs) went into completing that particular book. uh, And I'll spare people the details of some that's included in the book. Um, I was actually doing sort of two books last year. I was updating that Dave Grohl book and I was sort of getting that uh, Eddie Van Halen book ready for publishing and there's a lot of sleepless nights, and and, uh, yeah, just a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like a writer who uh, sort of gets up in the morning and, and knocks out 10,000 words before my first coffee. It's a laborious, tedious and painful process for me. You know, I, I'd have more fun, you know, as a bricklayer or something. Uh, that would be uh, an easier process for me. But, um, Yes, I don't know. I basically, when I got to the envelope, my agent was like, well, what do you think we should do next? What do you think we should do next? And I was like, Matthew, go away. i <laughs> to you for six months. I have no idea, you know. I, I don't want to see another book. I don't want to hear another piece of music. Uh, honestly, that doesn't last long. Um, and I did actually just submit a book, approach, a book proposal for something else. Um, literally this week. Um, I won't say what it is because that will undoubtedly jinx it and come back to haunt me. And so hopefully it's it's certainly another mega band and a a slightly different way of doing it story. And so I'm hopeful that'll come off. uh, But yeah, I'd rather not uh, put the black mark on it by mouthing off about it on radio (laughs) before uh, the publishers have, uh, you know, given the slightest nod that uh, that's going to happen. The Industry 45 Show.